0: Now, it is easy to forget as you read through the New Testament, it's easy to forget that the apostles were human beings. We we tend to think of the apostles as superhumans. You think of the apostle Paul, you think of all of the things that he did, you think of the ways in which the apostles were willing to suffer for their faith. They were able to heal people in a similar way to Jesus, they performed miracles. And miraculous events happened in their presence. The Lord used them to establish the church. Many of the apostles wrote the books of the New Testament. And almost all of the apostles, in one way or another, they suffered deeply for their faith, uh, martyrdom being the chief way in which they suffered. Peter is probably the most human and most relatable of the apostles. But... The largest and one of the most expensive church buildings in the world, St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican, is named after Peter and is supposedly built over his grave. But Peter was a man. He was a fisherman. Had he not been chosen by Christ to be one of the twelve, he would have lived in obscurity. He would have died in obscurity. You would have never known his name. He was a man who, it's certain, remembered his denial of his Lord To the end of his days, even after he had received the Holy Spirit, after witnessing the resurrected Lord, Peter was guilty of hypocrisy to the extent that Paul had to call him out publicly for it. He was an apostle, one of the original twelve, but instead of building by promoting himself, building himself up by promoting himself in our passage, he shows humility by referring to himself as a fellow elder. This should both raise our estimation of the office of elder, but also remind us that Peter was a human being who sinned and wasn't made perfect until he saw Jesus again in heaven. Now, in our passage this morning, Peter gives the church three exhortations. And so remember what you just witnessed down here at the front a few moments ago. And this is what I would ask you to think about, to consider this morning as we work our way through the sermon. Three exhortations to the elders... Shepherd the flock God has given you. To the members, be shepherded by the elders God has given you. To all, clothe yourselves with humility. Again, to the elders, shepherd the flock God has given you. To the members, be shepherded by the elders God has given you. To all, clothe yourselves with humility. So the first part of the sermon is shepherd. Shepherd. Peter told his readers in chapter 4, verse 19, to entrust their souls to a faithful God in the midst of their suffering. And Peter in chapter 5 is not beginning a new thought. He continues the thought by exhorting the elders to shepherd those who are entrusting their souls to the Lord during suffering. How do you entrust Your souls to the Lord will you be shepherded by the elders, by the ones God has given. Chapter 5, verse 1 is connected to chapter 4, verse 19, by therefore in Greek. And the New American Standard Bible gets it right in its translation. The English Standard Version, which I'm using, goes with a somewhat weaker so. It really ought to be therefore. Therefore, because those who are suffering have entrusted their souls to the Lord, shepherd the flock. That's the effect of what Peter is saying at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. Peter is reminding the elders that the people who have been entrusted to their care by the Lord have suffered enough at the hands of men. These people need to be made to lie down in green pastures. They need to be led by streams of still waters. These people were like sheep without a shepherd before the Lord took them in, and now they have been entrusted to the care of the elders in his church. Now this should be a sobering thought to those who are or who aspire to be elders Precious souls are placed under the oversight of elders. Peter undoubtedly has Jesus' words to him in John chapter 21, verses 15 to 18. He's thinking about these things. They're at the front of his mind as he writes this to the elders. Jesus told Peter, when he restored uh, Peter after Peter's denial of him, his three times denial, Jesus told Peter, Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And that passage in John 21, it says that Peter was grieved by Jesus' line of questioning him and by his repeated telling him to to do these things. But by the time that he wrote 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter understood the importance of Jesus' words to him. And he's exhorting the elders to do the same thing that Jesus told him. It's probably because of his being brought low after his denial of Jesus and his restoration by Jesus, that Peter easily identifies himself with the elders he is addressing in these verses. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Now this is an important designation that Peter gives to himself. In chapter 1, verse 1, Peter identified himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is an apostle. He was commissioned by Christ to go forth. To proclaim, to make disciples, to baptize. He was in the first and last generation of the apostles. He understands that it's an office that is going to die with him and and the others who, when they die, the office will die out. But the office of elder will live on. The office of elder is perpetual, the office of apostle was temporary. And the office of elder is one that we Presbyterians should be particularly interested in. This Greek word for elder, as many of you already know, is where we get the word Presbyterian. It's a word that so many people have such a hard time spelling out when they're trying to write it on a form. But it comes right out of the Greek. The Presbyterian is more than just a name for a church or a denomination. It describes our form of church government. Ours is a church. It's a denomination that is ruled by elders. And it's important to note not just one elder, but elders, plural. The leadership of this church does not rest on the shoulders of one individual. Our denomination believes in establishing churches from the very beginning with a plurality of elders. That's the pattern that's established in Scripture, and we try to do the same thing. We will not start a church Unless there are two or more elders that are involved in that work, whether they are local to the church or whether they have to be supplied from without. And so you remember when we were trying to get the Waco church plant going, I didn't have men to serve as elders there. Our elders, our session served as their session. For years we did that. That's the way we plant churches because we believe that's the biblical pattern. In fact, when the office of elder in the New Testament church is referred to, it is always in the plural. For instance, Acts chapter 14 verse 23 refers to Paul and Barnabas appointing elders in every church. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas take an issue they confronted on the mission field to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. And it should be noted that James is not an apostle. He's an elder, but he speaks with authority. And the apostles listen to what he says. Paul in 1 Timothy 4.14 reminds the young pastor Timothy of his ordination, speaking of the occasion when the council of elders laid their hands on him to ordain him. Paul reminds Titus in chapter 1 verse 5 that he was left in Crete to put what remained in order, appointing elders in every town. Christ's church is not led by one person who happens to have a dynamic personality and an entrepreneurial drive. It is to be led by a group of men appointed for the purpose by God. Your pastor is not the CEO or president of this church. I am one of several, and praise the Lord for it, because I do not want to operate by myself. And as Peter points out in verse 4, these men are not the ultimate leaders. They are only under-shepherds. In the church, the, tre- the chief shepherd and the head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the elders that he appoints are obligated to obey what he has commanded in his word. Verse 2 says that the elders are to shepherd God's flock, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. In other words, elders, elders are to exercise oversight voluntarily. We cannot force men to serve as elders. We cannot coerce them or guilt them into doing it. They must do so of their own free will. There should be a desire in the heart of the man to be an elder instead of simply giving in to the will of the people who nominated you or voted you in. That's why we're so careful in the process to make sure every step along the way that this man feels called, that he feels equipped, that he feels ready, that he has the desire to do so. Elders are to oversee the flock as God would have them do it, not necessarily according to the customs of worldly leadership. And rather than becoming an elder to greedily receive some sort of reward, we, our elders regularly joke about how much it is they get paid to serve as elders, and they're always wanting a raise. Financial or otherwise, a man who is an elder is to give more than he receives. In verse three, Peter says, "Not domineering over those in your charge. Literally, not uh, literally those appointed to you. Not domineering over those who are appointed to you, but being examples to the flock. Elders are to see the people under their care as ordained by God to be under their care. God has placed each and every one of you in this church and under the care of the oversight of your pastor and elders." Similarly, God has placed each and every one of these elders in authority over you. It is not by random chance that they are your elders. You voted them in according to God's divine appointment. The elders are not to domineer over the people of the church. Jesus uses the same word for domineer in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 and 26, when he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Instead of lording it over you like a slave driver, the elders are to lead by example. Elders are to lead from the front, according to God's will revealed in Scripture. They're not to drive you from behind with a whip. But if they are to be examples to the flock, that this means that you are expected to follow their lead. The ultimate goal of the elders should be to imitate Christ and you are to imitate the elders following what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. When the chief shepherd appears, as verse 4 says, those who shepherd the flock well will receive the unfading crown of glory. Unlike the hired hand in John chapter 10 verse 11 who sees the wolf coming and flees and leaves the sheep defenseless and scattered, the elders are sheep of the same flock and they care for that flock. Their ultimate aim is to be like the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And when elders have truly done this, faithfully carrying out all the duties required of them until the Lord calls them home, they will receive a crown of glory that never fades. I want to say something that I think our elders, the members of the session aside from me, might be a little bit embarrassed by. But many of you know that over the last several years, related to the church plant in Waco, without going into any specifics, that we went through a very difficult time. It was very hard. And I think there was a time, a point, for every man in our session, when we were thinking about, how can I keep, how can I keep going? How can I go on? We were under a lot of fire. There was, there was a lot of artillery aimed at us from a variety of directions. And every man stuck it out, stuck it out, by the grace of God, they stuck it out. Why? Because they love Christ's sheep. They love the flock. They love the flock here. They loved the flock in Waco that was entrusted to their care. They did not flee in the face of opposition, in the face of, of, of trial and struggle. They stuck it through, and they're here today, and praise God for that. That brings us to the second point of the sermon, be shepherded. We've talked about the shepherds, these under-shepherds that are serving under Jesus Christ in the church. But now we turn to you, the members of the congregation. You have a duty to be shepherded. Peter spent the first four verses giving instruction to the elders, but in the beginning of verse five, he shifts focus to the sheep. He says in verse five, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, the context here shows that Peter is not talking about the young people submitting to the older people in the church. He is speaking about the elders as officers in the church and everyone else who is not an elder submitting to those elders, regardless of your age. Certainly. There are a lot of folks in our church who are older than at least some of our elders and maybe older than all of our elders. But in this context, Peter is saying, submit, you who are younger, submit to your elders. He uses the same word in this verse that he used back in chapters two and three when he instructed all of his readers to be subject to every human institution, for bond slaves to be subject to their masters, and for wives to be subject to their husbands. You are to submit to your elders. Now the idea of submission, it's it's a tough one. There's a lot of resistance in our society to the the idea of submission, largely because it has been so abused. It's been so abused in our society, it's been abused in our church. But we also are Americans, and we revolt. (laughs) We don't like having authority over us, especially when it's oppressive, especially when it's tyrannical. This is what God's Word commands you to do, however. You are to submit to your elders. If you're a member of this congregation, you took membership vows. And the fifth of these vows is, do you agree to submit in the Lord to the government of this church and in case you should be found delinquent in doctrine or life to heed, it's discipline. That's a tough one. And that's the one that many of us forget we took. When you answer yes to this vow, you are agreeing to submit to the elders as they carry out the government of the church, as they carry out their work of shepherding your soul. You're asking them to keep watch over you. Please don't permit me to stray. Whether it's in doctrine or in my walk with Christ, don't let me stray. Don't let me wander. If I do, call me back. That's what you're saying when you take that vow. Now, this does not mean that elders or pastors have the right to tell you to commit a sin that you know is sin. We can't tell you to do something that violates your Christian liberty or liberty of conscience where the Bible is silent. And so where the Bible does not bind the consciences of Christians, the elders or other Christians, for that matter, have no authority to bind consciences. That's called meddling. And the Bible has something to say about that. Don't do it. We're not to meddle. None of us are. Certainly not elders. This doesn't give you the license to sin, however. But you do have real Christian liberty. And it is the duty of the elders to promote your Christian liberty, to defend your Christian liberty... But where the Bible speaks, such as about theology or about specific parts of your walk or obedience with Christ, the elders have a say in those things. The author of Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 gives similar advice to what Peter gives in our passage. He writes there, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Your elders are tasked with keeping watch over your souls. They are here to keep you, like sheep, from straying away from the faith. Allow them to do this by submitting to them. That brings us to the third and the final point of the sermon, put on humility. How do you submit to mere men? Now, most of you know the elders. You know they're fallible human beings. You might have seen them do something that the Bible says they shouldn't do. Probably have. How can you willingly submit to people you know are going to mess up from time to time? Well, you're in a similar situation to wives being expected to submit to their husbands. Even when a wife believes his husband is leading in an unwise but not sinful direction, let's make that clear... The wife may think the husband has made uh, an unwise decision for the family. It's not a sinful decision, but unwise, questionable. But ultimately, there's a call for submission in that area. Still commanded to submit. Just like Sarah, who submitted to Abraham, even though he devised a plan based on a lack of faith. And Peter uses that example earlier in this letter. Just like Sarah, you are to submit to your elders in matters of doctrine And life. And you can willingly do this, submit, by clothing yourselves with humility. Now it should be noted that Peter's command in the second half of verse 5 is addressed to all of you elders, deacons, sheep, all of you, me included, we are to clothe ourselves, we are to put on humility. It's expected both of the elders and of the flock. Paul gives the command in Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Paul and Peter command you to add to yourselves, to put on, to clothe yourselves with humility. Not arrogance. Not pride. Not haughtiness. Not looking down your noses at one another. Humility. Humility is the quality given by the Holy Spirit that enables you to see that you were formed from the dust of the earth and to dust you will return. Why would you think more highly of yourself than you ought when you know that you were made from dust and you're going back to it? Humility keeps you from seeing yourself more highly than you ought. Instead, it helps you to see others as more significant than yourself. Humility is what enables us all to submit to the Lord. Peter ends verse 5 by quoting Proverbs 3.34 from the Greek Old Testament. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now it is difficult to know when you suffer from a lack of humility, but one sure sign of a lack of humility is a resistance to submitting to those who are in lawful authority over you. It's not always a sure and true sign, but it can be an indication if if our children, children, if you if you fight against submitting to your parents, if you as members resist submitting to your elders, if you as believers in Christ refuse to submit to God's Word, it's a clear indicator that you are lacking in humility. And God's Word says that He will op- oppose you. He will set His face against you. You will be un- unable to accomplish anything good. However, If all of you clothe yourselves with humility, putting others' interests before your own, God will give grace to you. He will not oppose you. He will encourage you by pouring out grace upon grace on your heads. Now, humility is not highly regarded in our society. Turn on any professional athletic sporting event. There's no such thing as humility. And it's not just the athletes of whom I'm speaking. Humility is scoffed at. It's denigrated. It was the same way in Peter's time. Our culture teaches us to boast and brag and make exaggerated claims about ourselves. Humility in our culture it's a sign of weakness. But the Lord regards humility as an essential characteristic of the Christian. It's essential. Why? Why is that? I mean, is it any surprise that you and I, that we who are followers of Jesus Christ should be expected to be humble? You are constantly being shaped and molded and conformed into His likeness by the Holy Spirit. The more like Christ you are made, and this should be your goal, the more humble you will become. Why? Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, 6-8. Imagine if Jesus had not humbled himself. What if he had not put on the form of a servant by becoming a man? As the eternal Son of God, he had every right to remain where he was in heaven. But he considered you more important than himself, he counted you as more important, significant than himself. And so he humbled himself to rescue you, he humbled himself to bring you back into the fold. He humbled himself so that you, rather than fighting against God in your sinful condition, would have peace with God. And all that is required of you is to humble yourselves by repenting of your sinful rebellion against God and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is your single greatest act of humility. Because you are admitting that you cannot save yourself. You are confessing that there is nothing that you can do to make yourself right with God, but that he has made you right with himself. Now our focus up to this point has been on the elders because that's the focus of our passage in 1 Peter. But if it weren't for the service of our deacons, the elders would not be free to do their primary task of shepherding. Notice in the passage in Acts chapter 6 that the apostles who were serving as elders began to receive complaints that the Greek-speaking Jewish widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of assistance. Now the fact that Luke mentions their cultures here doesn't mean... that the the elders were biased against the Greek-speaking Jewish widows, but it does seem to indicate that that there was a perceived bias on the parts of these Greek-speaking Jewish widows. Chapter 6, verse 2 says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. You now, on the surface it might sound as if the apostles considered table service to be, to be beneath themselves. That's an uncharitable read of this passage. The reality is simply that they understand how important the preaching of the word was, but that the preaching of the word should not come at the expense of caring for widows. So the apostles instituted a new office in the church to carry out the ministries of mercy. And I need to be very quick to add to this. The apostles weren't just being innovative here. Acts chapter 1 verse 1 says that this is the work that Jesus Christ did. Luke is saying everything that follows is what Jesus did in his church. Even after his ascension, he sent his Holy Spirit. The apostles are acting based upon what the Holy Spirit is commanding them to do. And they're to do it. Because the ministries of mercy are so important. It's often thought that the deacon's primary responsibility is for the physical and the physical aspects of the church, the building and the budget. It's often what what is relegated to the deacons and not a lot of thought is given to other parts of it. But this passage makes it very clear that that isn't the case. As one pastor put it, the deacons reflect Christ's rule of his church as a benevolent king. The deacons reveal this king by teaching about him and by demonstrating his merciful compassion. Deacons, above all else, you are to be compassionate. Compassionate upon God's sheep. Compassionate upon your neighbors. Compassionate to the world. And so deacons reflect our king by showing his humility through their humility and his compassion through their compassion. Elders, as you consider what it means to shepherd Christ's flock, remember that his people belong to him. And they have been entrusted to your gentle care. Deacons, remember that as you serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, you are walking in his steps. And as you do unto the least of these, you have done unto him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as you consider what it means to submit to your elders, remember that Christ has placed these men in authority over you. They have been entrusted with the care of your souls. Allow them to care for you and to correct you on those occasions when it's necessary. All of you, as you consider what it means to clothe yourselves with humility, remember how Christ became a slave in order to free you from your bondage to sin. Remember how the one through whom all heaven and earth was created came to serve you, not to be served. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news.